Okay, Hebrews chapter 9. I want us to start there because as we look at these sacrifices in Leviticus, we want to understand what, what it means to encounter sin, to, to face the pain of sin and the darkness of sin. And we realize that, uh, we see that in our own lives. But we want to understand what Christ has accomplished for us through his sacrifice, what it means to be forgiven. What has he forgiven us of? What's the, what are the effects of that? And the book of Hebrews is a great place to explore that. And you can spend, I know some of the Sunday school classes even now are, are beginning to go through that. And so there's a lot there to explore. But just to point out one particular place, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. I just want us to read a summary statement here in Hebrews that gives us a good reminder of what Christ has done. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That phrase there, purify our conscience, is a key phrase. Then you look at the end of chapter 9. Starting in verse 25, chapter 9, verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, with that foundation, with that background, let's go back to the book of Leviticus and think about the next two offerings that, that we encounter here. On your note sheet here, if you turn it over to, uh, to the back, that first chart at the top, Sorry for kind of the blurry lines to see how the chart works, but you get the idea there at the top, that main chart. Those are the five main offerings that you see in the book of Leviticus. So burnt offering, grain offering, fellowship, purification, reparation. We've already done the first three. Tonight we're going to do those four and five, purification and reparation. Don't worry about those words in particular right now. We'll get into them in a second. The next chart, uh, the one with animal blood, officiant down the side, that kind of summarizes the way the purification uh, sacrifice worked. And then that bottom chart there, sin, repayment, animal, and chapters 5 and 6, that's going to summarize the way those reparation uh, offerings. So I just wanted you to have a summary that you could, you could refer to if, if that was helpful for you. But back on the front, at the top is the purification offering. And at the bottom of that note sheet is, is the reparation offering. So first... Let's do the purification offering. Sometimes this has been called the sin offering. That's not the best title for it because it comes into play at times that 
sin itself is not involved. Sin in the sense of a bad moral decision. Sometimes this offering is just used when you encounter a dead body and so you're considered to be defiled. Or we'll run into other times that it's involved. So it's much better called the purification offering. What's going on here? Leviticus chapter 4. You say, what's going on here? Good question. Um, Leviticus chapter 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of them, if it's the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. Verse 5, And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. Here's where it gets bloody. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times, number for completion, purification, before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that's in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then in verse 8, all the way down through verse 11, they begin to burn up everything uh, else that's involved, the, the fat and the other parts of the bull. And then in verse 12, he's going to carry it outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it on a fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall all be burned up. Okay, so that's the beginning point. Now look at the very next phrase in verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and then you get a whole bunch of descriptions about what's that happened. And essentially it's the same thing that happened with the priest. Then you go down to verse 22. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that are commanded, then it tells you what to do. Verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt um, or the sin he's committed is made known to him, then he shall offer for his offering a goat. And then it tells you what to do with that. What you get are four groups of people who have sinned unintentionally. Now, on your notes, I've pointed out that in the law, in these laws that are given, there are really kind of two types of sin. There's unintentional sin, and there's intentional sin. I know your kids try to use this, like, I didn't mean to mess up, I didn't mean to sin. That's actually a biblical category um, involved here. So these are unintentional sins. So the first kind is, I knew the law, but didn't realize I had broken it. So last summer, our trusty, we thought was trusty, Odyssey minivan broke down on us. Um, and so we looked and looked and looked, and we're sure we could come up with another option, except we ended up buying another Odyssey minivan um, for our next vehicle. Drove it around several months. Got a letter in the mail, really nice letter, saying, you passed through a lot of toll gates without paying anything in, in recent months, realized, oh man, we never got a new toll tag when we, when we got the new vehicle. Um, had we broken a law? Yeah, actually a lot of them, <laughs> worth a lot of money. Um, 
repeatedly we'd broken the law. Did we intend to break the law? I promise you we didn't. Like there was no, there was no, and this is the same minivan. We sold the old one with our really nice floor mats left in there and was so angry about selling those old floor mats accidentally. I think it just threw me off. Um, And so once I realized I'd given away my expensive floor mats, I was, yeah, I was just really angry about that. So maybe I did this sin intentionally and didn't realize what was happening. But we'd passed through all these toll gates. We had sinned, broken the law repeatedly, but it was unintentional. Didn't, didn't mean to do it, but we'd still done something wrong. Uh, the second type is didn't know the law and broke it. This is every kid's first thing they learn about law enforcement or that you teach your kids. Even though you didn't know it was the law, it's still wrong. You still broke it. Uh, when you go 45 and a 30, but you didn't know it was a 30 mile per hour zone, you still broke the law. You can try to get out of that ticket, um, but probably isn't going to happen unless you have connections and can get yourself out of that ticket. But unintentional, you didn't intend to sin, you didn't intend to break the law, you just didn't know that the law was in place there and you broke it. Now, there are also in Scripture instances of intentional sin. Um, Look over in chapter 5 just for a second. Chapter 5 introduces some situations that seem to be more intentional. Uh, Especially, let's see, verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, in other words, you're you're called to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So in this situation, you're called to testify about a matter and you refuse to show up, you've sinned. You, you've intentionally not done something. If you grew up in church, grew up around church, you may have heard these categories called the sins of commission, I mean you committed a sin, and then there are things called sins of omission. You sinned by not doing something. You should have done something but you didn't take that action, and so it's still a sin, even though you were passive and didn't know what you were supposed to do. And so all these purification laws come around, and, and they deal with these different type, types of sins. Now, there's a fourth category. It's intentional and what Scripture calls high-handed. If you're quick in your Bible or your phone, and you want to hold your place in Leviticus, and you go to the right just a little bit, you go to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 15 has what is probably the most famous, or actually you should probably say the most infamous story. Numbers chapter 15. Look in verse 27. You're going to see the same language that we're seeing in Leviticus. So we're in Numbers chapter 15, verse 27. Look for the same language we just saw. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake, for he, when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger. So everybody falls in these categories. Verse 30, but the person who does anything with a high hand whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord 
and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Um, You go down in verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord had commanded. That seems so intense here. Like what's going on? But remember, this story follows directly from a high-handed sin. I think you could probably guess at this, and it's, I know it's hard to formulate in a group like this, but describe for me what's meant by a high-handed sin. How have you heard this described? What, what's Scripture talking about there? Um, or what do you know about this type of sin? Yeah, defiant, I think, is probably the... the in fact, some of the translations may even use that type of, type of language. It's, I know it, this is the hard moment of where your kids, they know what's wrong to do, and they stare you straight in the face and just don't care. Like, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to do it whether you say it or not. I'm going to raise my hand above you. Um, or when your kids outgrow you and can look down at you and say, I'm going to do this just because I want to do this. It, it's a high-handed, defiant, I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, in the New Testament, what's maybe... Uh, an example you can think of of high-handed, defiant sin that happens in the New Testament. Yeah, Ananias and Sapphira there in Acts chapter 5 where they hide the money and then they lie about it. And what happens to them? Yeah, they die um, immediately, which is reflective of this, which tells us the seriousness that's involved in this. Um, if you want to see high-handed sin also talked about, you read the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews has some passages that are famously called the warning passages, um, dealing with these ideas of what does it look like when you just sin in a way that says, this is how I'm going to live my life. I don't care what anybody says about it. I'm going to be defiant about it. It's a dangerous path to walk um, because there's one thing to sin unintentionally and to come back to the Lord seeking purification. It's another to say, I'm going to live my life how I want to. Um, and, and just go on. There's, there's a danger involved in that, obviously. And so what's the meaning of these purification offerings? It's a recognition of sin, number one, and a response to sin, number two. So I have to recognize this is a problem. I realize this is a problem that I'm sinning, and I realize I need forgiveness for this, that there's a recognition and a response. Now, we don't bring offerings uh, or sacrifices the way they did in the Old Testament. Um, and it's not, we're not called to stone anybody, but we are called to take seriously what sin involves, what it means to sin against the Lord. Um, and that there's effect of sin both on the sinner and the people and places around that person. Uh, and remember the four categories that are involved there? The priest, the whole congregation, the leader, and the regular citizen. What it's talking about there is you need a holy leadership in place, but then that holiness should permeate the people, should go throughout the, uh, the congregation. And you think about church life, often those two things are related, um, which is a scary thought when you think about ministry leadership and a scary thought, especially if you want to stand in front of people and teach scripture that 
if leadership is not committed to, to holiness, pretty quickly that can permeate the entire congregation. And if you have a congregation that doesn't care anything for holiness, very quickly that either drives the leadership out or it ends up corrupting the leadership. And these things go back and forth. And what God is saying is across the body, across the group, there needs to be a recognition of sin and confession, repentance, and healing that, that comes with that. There's a seriousness. I think that's what I take from chapter 4 and 5 when I read this, a seriousness of sin that it needs, we need to be able to recognize it and we need to be able to respond to it, and we need to be able to do that together. Sometimes, sometimes you need other people to speak into your life to help you recognize that, that that's a, a sin, that that's a problem. Sometimes you need a, a letter from the turnpike people <laughs> saying, you've sinned. Um, you didn't mean to. I don't think you were intentionally doing this, but this is a problem. You, you need to deal with it. Just like they did for us with that letter, sometimes we need to be able to speak into people's lives. Um, We've talked about this before. Those conversations go a lot better when you already have a relationship with that person than just when you're random Joe walking up saying, hey, I see something wrong in, in your life. If you know that person, care for them, invested in them, you can speak in and say, I recognize this. I want to make sure we're taking this seriously. And, and the New Testament has so many uh, examples and models of how to do that. Okay, so that's purification offering. Let's go to the second one. The second one here, which actually, I guess, technically is the fifth one that we'll deal with, Starts in chapter 5, verse 14. That word reparation, extra points if you use that in conversation today um, at some point. But reparation is obviously a word we don't use very much. But uh, that repayment idea, uh, repairing something, you're, you're making amends for something. Chapter 5, verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. Verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth or 20% to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Okay, we don't get a super clear indication of exactly what's happening here, but this sin involves property that's been devoted to the Lord. And someone sin has sinned by taking that property and doing something with it. And so not only do you have to bring a sacrifice now, but you also have to make repayment of what was taken plus 20%. Uh, so you're not only having an offering, but you're taking action to, to pay back what has, what has been taken. Think to the New Testament. What, do you, what stories do you think of in the New Testament related to this type of idea? I think Zacchaeus is probably the one that, that comes to mind. Only Zacchaeus does better than 20%. He goes like in the 400% uh, category. But it's recognition that when uh, forgiveness is sought, that, that you take action. It's not just a sacrifice or an offering, it's that plus making repayment. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says if you're offering, you're making your offering, and there remember that someone has something against you, you leave your offering there, you go, make it right with that person, and then you come back and you give the offering. And so 
it's offering forgiveness, but it's also related to making repayment, taking action. It's not cheap grace. You don't just say, oops, I messed up. Here's my offering. I'm going to go on. There's action that's involved. There's a restoration, a repair of the relationship, both with the Lord and with the person that, that you've stolen from, that this property is involved. Anytime property is involved, and I think I put this on the notes, maybe, yep. Anytime property is involved, disrespect for property is disrespect for the owner, which is a standard idea throughout the pages of the, of the Old Testament, and it works in 2018. You mess with somebody's property, you've disrespected the owner of that property. You mess with God's property, you've dishonored and disrespected God by, by the way that you handled that. And so this is the, the path that's given. Now look in verse 17. This is where things get interesting and, and very practical for, for us. Verse 17. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Okay, it's hard to get what's going on here. So go back to verse 17. Let's, I want to read through this again, and we're going to compare translations here in a second. So if you have anything other than English Standard Version, prepare to read. Um, verse 17. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commands, commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Okay, keeping kind of your version in front of you. Somebody read a couple of other translations, not English Standard Version. Okay. Okay. All right. So chapter 5, verse 17, give us a... What do you have? Okay, 517. Okay. King James version in the house? New King James. Yeah, okay. All right. Now go for it. Go for it. What do you have, any Grace? Okay. I think we kind of get the general idea. So there's a key phrase in there. Though he did not know it, did not recognize it. Then the next phrase is the key one. Then recognizes his guilt, will be guilty. Here's the idea behind this. Let me, let me get to the, the core of this. This is a situation where you've done something wrong, but you don't know what you've done wrong. Like, Owen, that's, what are you, that's ridiculous. You must not live with a guilty conscience like the rest of us do. Um, you ever just get a guilty conscience like, I've 
you obviously don't. You guys are fine. Apparently, you live in a perfect world. But uh, this, we're going to get to this as a difference in personality, usually within a marriage, but not always. But uh, um, some people just have a guilty conscience. Like, I, I just feel that I've screwed up. I, I feel that I've sinned. I've done something wrong. I can't put my hand finger on it. I don't know exactly what it is, but I just have this feeling that, that I've sinned against the Lord. There's this, this pain. There's this deep conviction. I don't know what I'm seeking forgiveness for, but I'm going to ask the Lord to provide forgiveness. What you have in these, in these offerings is in the first offering we looked at, you have a situation where you need someone to help you recognize the sin, to see that it's a sin, and then to seek forgiveness. In this current situation, you feel sinful all the time, and you need to know that forgiveness is possible and that guilt can be taken care of. Um, one side has trouble recognizing sin and needs to realize, hey, sin's a big deal. It needs to be dealt with. The other side needs to be reminded, you don't live under condemnation and guilt and shame all the time. There's hope in Christ. Your conscience is able to be cleansed. Um, this, uh, it's not UFO. It's not unidentified flying objects. Sometimes it's called UGC, unidentified guilty conscience. Um, I've heard preachers use a different phrase. I like UGC. But it's just this idea of guilt. Now, oftentimes in a marriage or in a family, one person feels guilty all the time. And the other person is the type of person that says, why do you feel guilty all the time? Like, we seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, and, and this is just kind of the way that sin works itself out in different ways. Both are dangerous. Living under guilt and shame all the time will keep you trapped because you always feel like I'm never going to be good enough. I can't be before. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your conscience is able to be made clean. You're, you're, the shame is taken away in Christ. The other side, realize if we claim to have no sin, sin lives in us. Um, there needs to be a recognition of sin. There needs to be a recognition of what God has, has done for us. And so guilty conscience, though, is, is right at the core of just, and, and I say this carefully because I know this hits really close to home for, for many of you, but uh, the deep anxiety disorders that we can deal with, the deep anxiety that we can face where you just feel like I'm just not good enough. Like I live under shame and, and condemnation all the time, you need to know that that's been taken care of in Christ, that, that there is hope, there's freedom. Do we still deal with mental illness? Do we still deal with anxiety disorder? Absolutely we do. We live in a broken world where those things are there. But, but to know there's no condemnation. If you find yourself thinking, you know, I could probably get through life on my own. I seem to be doing pretty well in life. Realize that's equally a dangerous place to be. That's a place that leads to pride that leads to high-handed sin, and you need to see the humility that comes into play there. So uh, I just want you to see both sides of that and how the sacrifice of Christ deals with both of those. If you're a guilty person all the time in your conscience, I've always done something wrong, go home with freedom. If you're someone that struggles with pride, go home with a recognition of what Christ has done in your life to provide that forgiveness. Okay, let's wrap up because we're almost out of time. Uh, chapter 6 uh, gets us to the, uh, to the end of this final Final one here, chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor 
or has found something lost and lied about it, <laughs> well, that will make you guilty. <laughs> Who's found something lost and just taken it? That penny you pulled up off the uh, ground. Um, has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do in sin. If he has sinned, this is verse 4, he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall be forgiven of any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is another reminder here that reconciliation with God means reconciliation with one another. Um, There's a passage there in the Sermon on the Mount uh, where Jesus says that if you forgive others when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. You say, well, that sounds strange. Well, if we don't realize what God has done for us in Christ to provide forgiveness, if that doesn't affect our relationships with one another, it realizes we never understood what God did for us in Christ. When we are set free of sin, when we're restored to the Lord, it's going to change the way uh, that we interact with one another. Meaning that if we cause harm to somebody, we're going to make it right. We not only need forgiveness from the Lord, but we need forgiveness for, for one another. So here's what I hope you take home. One, Christ has died for your sins. And that requires deep recognition of our sin. Realizing what God has done for us in Christ. And going to him for confession and repentance. Number two, don't be held down by a guilty conscience. Guilt is a good thing because it makes us sensitive to what God has done in our life, but if you are overwhelmed by guilt, if you are overwhelmed by shame, that can keep you from doing what God's called you to do. And number three, if you've wronged someone, it's not just, God, will you forgive me? It's, who do I need to reach out to and make it right? And that may require phone call tonight, that may require an action tomorrow, but it's the idea of, Lord, have I wronged someone in such a way that I've asked your forgiveness, but I've not reached out to that person to display that I understand what this means and and what you've done for me. So that's what I hope you pull from from these verses tonight. Let me pray for you, and we'll we'll be dismissed. God, thank you again for this portion of scripture that so easy either just to skip um, or to skim through quickly. Uh, it's hard to understand. These are concepts that are, are really distant from us culturally, but they help us understand what you've done for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross. Uh, they help us understand the hold that sin can have and, and, and what it does to damage our relationship with you and with one another. But God, thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And God, I pray that we would extend that forgiveness to one another. God, I pray that we'd reach out and restore relationships that might be broken because of sin in the past. God, I pray if there are people here that are uh, crippled by anxiety and guilt and shame, God, that they would know what Christ has done for them to take care of that sin completely, that they don't need to be held down by that.
And God, I pray that if there are people here tonight who struggle with pride um, and, and struggle to realize all that you've done, God, that you would continue to remind them of, of what it means uh, that Christ came and died for their sins and provided that, that forgiveness. And so, Father, thank you again for all the ways that your word speaks into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks again for being here tonight. Let's have a good night. Enjoy the amazing weather tomorrow.